0: episode of the Physicians Weekly podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles from MediCom Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. There was a lot of interesting medical news this last week, For example, there was the first transplant of a genetically modified pig heart into a human, and the recipient was David Bennett, Sr. At the time of this recording, he's still doing quite well. However, Mr. Bennett's criminal past did stir up some ethical questions about who deserves access to the scarce supply of human organs in the United States and abroad. There was also a paper published in the journal Science, which garnered attention, because after over 50 years of research since that very first paper back in 1972, researchers have finally answered the question about whether infection with the Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV, which causes mononucleosis, places people at a much higher risk of multiple sclerosis. And the answer is yes. It puts people at a 34-fold higher risk. And just to put that into perspective, smoking only puts people in about a 26-fold higher risk of lung cancer.
1: Welcome to Physicians Weekly.
0: Later in this episode, we interviewed the lead study author, Professor Alberto Asherio from Harvard University, and he describes how they had to screen over 10 million young adults to prove that the infection with EBV always precedes MS.
1: The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare.
0: Also in this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast, we speak with our regular contributor, who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw, about what the standard of care means in the courtroom and how clinical guidelines can be used to that end. First, Physicians Weekly speaks with Dr. Manali Kamdar from the University of Colorado about the results of the Transform study, which demonstrated that CAR T-cells are an effective and safe therapy to treat diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the second line. She presented these interim results as a late-breaking abstract at the American Society of Hematology annual meeting in 2021, just a few weeks ago. She does a great job introducing herself, so I'll leave that to her.
1: Enjoy listening. Visit physiciansweekly.com
2: Thank you very much for having me. My name is Manali Kamdar. I'm from the University of Colorado Cancer Center and I had the opportunity on behalf of the co-authors to present the results of the phase three pivotal transform study where in patients with relapsed or refractory diffuse large cell lymphoma, primary refractory or relapse within 12 months after frontline chemoimmunotherapy were randomized in a one to one fashion to either getting lysocaptogene meralusa versus standard of care which consisted of three cycles of salvage chemotherapy for Followed by an auto transplant. The results that I presented are at a pre-specified interim analysis, and at this median follow-up of 6.2 months, the primary endpoint was met. The primary endpoint was event-free survival, and the event-free survival was statistically significant as well as superior in the lysocell arm as compared to the standard of care arm. In the lysocell arm, the median EFS was 10.1 months, and in the standard of care arm, it was only 2.3 months, which represented a 60%. reduction in the number of EFS events. In terms of key secondary endpoints that were met with respect to complete response rate as well as progression-free survival. The complete response rate was statistically significant and higher in the lysosel arm at 66% versus 39% in the standard of care. And in terms of the BFS, it was statistically significant at 14.8 months in the lysosel arm and only 5.7 months in the standard of care arm. I think notable were the overall survival curves and at a median follow-up of 6.2 months, it's an interim and Analysis, it's still fairly immature, but it is very striking to see that the two curves have separated. They're trending towards lysocell So we are really awaiting the next data cut and a longer follow-up to see what happens of those survival curves. If the survival curves absolutely make an impact, then it makes people live longer, and that will be a huge thing for the product as well as for the patients. In terms of safety, that was something that also turned out to be very assuring. The safety was manageable. There were no new safety signals that were seen. The safety was comparable between the standard of care and lysocell infusion. In terms of the unique side effects that we are all privy to with CAR T cell therapy, such as cytokine release syndrome, neurological events, these toxicities were all low grade. There were absolutely no grade 4 or grade 5 CRS or neurological events that were seen in the lysocell infusion, which was a win-win for patients. In fact, some of the patients, even in my practice as a clinical investigator enrolling these patients, I actually had, most of my patients be treated outpatient. So the ease of administration, the lack of side effect profile that was adverse, the manageable side effects that you do see with car otherwise, for example, cytopenias, they were slightly higher as compared to auto transplant, but that actually did not translate into a higher grade three infection, which ended up being higher in the standard of care arm than lysocell infusion. So overall, to conclude, I have to say that at this interim pre-specified analysis, of this phase three global randomized pivotal study, the transform study isocell infusion turned out to be much superior with respect to event free survival, progression free survival, complete response rate, and an excellent safety profile as compared to salvage chemo followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. The overall survival curves are looking very promising, so longer follow-up is awaited, and safety profile is very, very good with absolutely no grade 4 or grade 5 events. So what do I really make of this study design and the results? I think for our patients with large B-cell lymphoma, that are primary refractory or relapse within 12 months after frontline chemoimmunotherapy. For nearly two decades, the standard of care has been salvage chemo followed by an auto transplant. And we all know that these patients do extremely poorly. Their outcomes are very, very dismal, with only a quarter really achieving long-term durable remission. So this clinical trial sets a benchmark. It's a paradigm shift in terms of breakthrough therapy in the form of lysocaptogene marilucel because it certainly makes people be in remission much longer at the cost of less toxicity as well as manageable safety profile. So in my mind, I think this is a potential new standard of care. And based on the review by the regulatory agencies, I hope this gets offered to patients in the second line setting, especially the ones that are primary refractory or relapse within 12 months of frontline chemoimmunotherapy.
0: At the American Society of Hematology annual meeting, there were also two other trials reporting on different CAR-T cell products in the second line for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I know it's not ideal, but could you comment or compare the TRANSFORM study with these other two trials, the Zuma-7 and the Belinda trials? To your
2: question about how do you really compare across the three clinical trials, I have to say that the Zuma trial was positive, TRANSFORM was a positive study, and then Belinda was a negative study. Study. What do I make from the Zuma results and uh, lysocaptogene? I do know that on the lysocaptogene arm, bridging therapy was allowed, but it was one cycle of bridging therapy. Uh, CNS lymphoma was allowed. Many more histologies were allowed. For example, follicular lymphoma grade 3B, transform lymphoma from non-follicular compartments. CNS lymphoma was allowed. Patients did not need to have a minimum lymphocyte cutoff for enrollment. So the eligibility criteria was a lot wider and liberal on the transform study the safety profile looked extremely convincing with no grade 4 or grade 5 aes that were attributable to crs or neurological events and then what do we really make of belinda and i think you know this morning in fact at the late breaker dr bishop very very accurately alluded to the fact that the trials are a little different they are nuanced in their study design for example bridging therapy was much more liberal in the belinda design Patients could actually get more than one cycle of salvage chemotherapy. The EFS definition was different for Belinda. The time to infusion was longer. There were different lymphodepleting chemos that were used in Belinda as compared to Zuma and transform. The trial design actually did not really permit to assess the true efficacy of the CAR T with Belinda, as it may have been with Zuma and Transform. In real time, when I treated patients on the Lysocell study, most of my patients who have receive lysocell infusion, they actually have continued to do well.
0: What kind of practical advice can you give our physician listeners with regard to this new treatment?
2: The practical advice would be this is a paradigm shift in terms of all the therapies that we have tried in a futile manner in the past for this high risk subset. All of these clinical trials, these three trials tested the highest risk relapse refractory diffuse large cell lymphoma patients. And previously, they used to historically succumb to their disease. And at this point, based on at least the two positive trials that we see, they we are making a difference. We are making them at least have an event-free survival that is much longer than salvage chemo followed by an auto transplant.
0: Will CAR T cell therapy become available in
2: community hospitals? So I think it needs to be a marriage between community centers and academic institutions because clearly at this time, most of the experience of CAR T cell therapy comes from academic sites, although there are a few community sites who have also enrolled on these clinical trials, but I think it has to be a robust collaborative effort between community oncologists and academic oncologists where community oncologists feel absolutely free to send their patients over to academic clinicians. And once the CAR T cell therapy is done, they can be referred back to the community setting. I think this easy exchange of ideas of clinical trials is what will help make our most high-risk patients get the benefit of CAR T cell therapy.
0: Dr. Kamdar, thanks so much for your insight on these three trials and the future of CAR T therapies. Thank you so much, Rachel. Have a lovely day.
1: Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. Doctors are concerned about the concept of standard of care because they fear that it may be interpreted after the fact to claim a departure. Do practice guidelines have any role in dealing with this during a malpractice case?
3: They can. As we all know, to prevail in a medical negligence action, a plaintiff must prove that the defendant failed to practice on them in accordance with the standard of care. That means that what the standard of care actually is, is a pivotal point, And that's what the experts for each side will be opining on. And in doing so, they can cite the clinical guidelines.
1: How are the guidelines brought into the case as evidence?
3: Well, they're hearsay. They're out-of-court statements submitted for their own truth, and their authors are not available to be cross-examined. However, they can come in under an exception to the hearsay rule called the Learned Treatise, and that covers things like texts and peer-reviewed literature. And just like the experts own testimony and any texts or literature that the expert may refer to, there's some evidence of it. There's something that the jury can take into account, but they're not a game-ender in and of themselves. Now that having been said, guidelines actually carry a great deal of weight with jurors because they're seen as having a neutral and wide acceptance. Uh, It takes them out of this adversarial battle of the experts. So if a side can use them, they certainly want to do so. What role can choosing
1: widely guidelines have in a medical malpractice case?
3: Potentially a large one. The Choosing Wisely campaign, which is from the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, is directed to limiting unneeded care. So it recommends tests and procedures, and these recommendations come from medical specialty organizations. So that immediately invests credibility on the side that wants to use it because, hey, If a specialty organization says that something is not actually worthwhile doing, then how can a physician be considered negligent for not doing it? Or if a campaign to counter unnecessary medical actions still favors doing something, how could it be non-negligent to not do it? However, as you might expect, it also has issues. How so? Well, some choosing wisely guidelines are very straightforward. For example, The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery recommending that patients with degenerative joint disease of the knee stop taking glucosamine and chondroitin because there's just no reliable evidence that these supplements help. And these are blanket statements that doctors can rely on. Others are not. An example would be the American College of Radiology's recommendation against using CT in patients who are at low risk of pulmonary embolus, or the ACP's recommendation against imaging in patients with nonspecific low back pain. Then, on the flip side, a doctor can have a problem because they do a test or treatment that is not recommended, but that the doctor still felt was individually in that patient clinically required.
1: How does that distinction between the guideline and the individual case play out in testimony?
3: Well, if either side raises a choosing widely recommendation, the other side will try to show the patient did not precisely fit the parameters of the guideline. And frankly, that can be very successful because patients don't follow cookbook limitations. However, there's a wider potential rebuttal that is important. The expert for the side opposing the guideline will remind the jurors that the intent of choosing wisely was to encourage discussion between doctors and patients about what the scope of the care would be, not to substitute for the doctor's own clinical judgment in that individual case.
1: How about guidelines from specialties themselves?
3: What role do they have? It depends on what the purpose of the guidelines are. Guidelines that are set out to establish standards for patient care will operate just as we discussed for the Choosing Widely recommendations, and perhaps even more so because jurors will see them as representing what specialty groups deem their own best practices to be. However, an attempt to tilt the playing field will not be permitted. Now, this actually came up in 2014. The College of American Pathologists and the American Society of Cytopathology set their own guidelines, and these were, shall we say, remarkably forgiving of reader error as to when misreadings of pap smears could be considered negligent. The 11th Circuit held that these standards could not be enforced, and it reinstated a lawsuit that had been dismissed because the plaintiff's expert had not followed these guidelines. And the court very clearly distinguished between guidelines about how practitioners should read samples and an attempt to tell a court how it should adjudicate a claim. It called these guidelines out as the actions of an industry group to simply make it more difficult to sue its members. Now, these guidelines were, frankly, a real overreach, but could a less brazen attempt work? Probably not. They would still inherently usurp the ability of a court to function under established rules of evidence that are intended to be even-handed rather than unilaterally self-serving. How about safe harbor guidelines? Well, these were attempts by states to set up a system in which if a doctor followed a guideline, they'd be protected from being sued. Um, The most well-known example of that was what Maine tried. So under this program, medical advisory committees created practice guidelines for anesthesiology, emergency medicine, uh, obstetrics, and radiology. So if a physician participated in the program or was later sued for medical care that was covered by the guidelines, they could cite their adherence to those guidelines as an affirmative defense, and that would make them immune from liability. On the other hand, noncompliance with the guidelines could not be used as plaintiffs as evidence of negligence. And the defense was never used for a decade, even though malpractice cases in the States increased by 23% over that time, and the legislation was eventually repealed as ineffective. Uh, it turns out that the same issue that we discussed earlier in actually litigating for or against a cited guideline was the issue here. Real-world care of individual patients means that every step of a guidelines checklist will likely not be ticked off like a cookbook.
1: So what would be the best way for doctors to understand the role of clinical guidelines in a malpractice case?
3: That when they come into evidence, they may provide some defense when met or some negative impact when not met, but they're not dispositive in and of themselves. They can be rebutted with individual facts from the case that show that they were not actually a good fit for the circumstances. Ultimately, individual clinical decisions will still be what matters. As always... Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for a chance to talk about this important issue.
0: We were really thrilled to get this opportunity to speak with Professor Alberto Asherio today about the causes of multiple sclerosis and his recent publication in Science pointing to the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV. Thank you, Dr. Ascherio, for joining us. Can you tell our listeners about this study?
4: The purpose of the study was to establish a relationship between Epstein-Barr virus infection and multiple sclerosis, and the difficulty is that EBV is nearly ubiquitous, so the large majority of people are infected by the age of 18 or 20. So we needed a large population of young adults, very large, so we could identify a sufficient number of individuals who were not infected with EBV, follow them over time, and establish whether there is a temporal relationship between the time of EV infection and multiple sclerosis. So we, we identified this population within the US military, over 10 million young men and women who are in active duty in the US Army, Navy, and Air Force. And within this very large population, about 5% were EBV negative at time of recruitment into, into the military. So we followed them over time, and what we found that there were virtually no cases of MS until after a BV infection. So as long as an individual is CBV negative, the risk of MS is virtually zero. And after a BV infection, over a period of several months or a few years, the risk jumps up over 30-fold. And in, in parallel, we used the cytomegalovirus as a control virus to see if something similar was happening with a virus that has a similar mode of transmission. And we found no association between CMV and MS. In addition, we used the neurofilament, which is a marker of uh, neurodegeneration, to establish the relationship between EBV infection and the very beginning of the pathological process. And what we found that NFL levels are very stable in all the individual until after EBV infection. After EBV, those individuals who go on to develop MS display an increase in neurofilament suggesting that the EBV infection precede not only the clinical onset of MS, but also the very beginning of the pathological process that lead to multiple sclerosis. So finally, to make sure of the specificity of the EBV finding, we did a virome wide investigation in which we look at the antibody responses against peptides covering the entire non-human virome. And we saw that the only peptide that discriminate between cases and control were all EBV peptides. So this was quite a striking, I would say, an expected result because we did expect some noise. I've never seen anything so clear cut, black and white, that only EBV stand out as a relevant infection.
0: But is it correct that EBV has been implicated in the etiology of MS for at least 50 years now?
4: that that's correct and we did several studies ourselves but until now you know we, we only got the critique well you know it can be that people with multiple sclerosis you know because of the immune dysregulation are more likely to get infected with, with EBV. so this is the first large longitudinal study that uh, establish in a definitive manner the temporal sequence of event and so i think virtually rule out the possibility that uh, EBV infection is a consequence rather than a cause of ms
0: Excellent. And so because you had these blood samples of, what, 10 million people or something on that order, did you look at vitamin D deficiency or other risk factors that are also thought to be involved in MS
4: development? We did in the past. In fact, this is one in 2006. We we demonstrated that uh, young adults with vitamin D deficiency have about two-fold higher risk of developing MS than those with high level of vitamin D.
0: The enormous implication here is that if we were able to start a vaccination program to vaccinate babies before they were able to contract EBV infections, if we could prevent those infections, could we eradicate MS? Is that a logical conclusion?
4: I I believe so. As long as we had a vaccine that prevents EBV infection, which we don't at this time, so there is ongoing research for a vaccine against EBV, so if we had a vaccine that confer uh, sterile immunity, meaning it really prevent the entry of the virus into the body, we would prevent the mace. Now, va- vaccine works in different ways, so we may have a vaccine that does not prevent the infection completely, but uh, alter the immune response to the virus. So uh, there is more complexity there. What the impact could be on on a mace? Also, because a B V infection occurs uh, largely in childhood or before or during adolescence. Um, you know, a vaccine uh, would have to be administered early enough and would need to confer long lasting immunity to prevent MS.
0: What about current strategies? What are you excited about?
4: Well, you know, for me, the most exciting implication is the possibility that targeting EBD would be beneficial in the over 2.8 million people with MS in the world. Uh, there is no certainty about this, but uh, it seems quite likely EBV established a persistent infection in B lymphocytes, and uh, it seems likely that targeting the virus will uh, lead to a better treatment or cure of Mase than what can we achieve today. So today, the best drug are anti-CD20. Anti-CD20 deplete the B cells, which are the primary site of EBV persistence in the body. So to get rid of the virus, basically, we are getting rid of an important component of our immune system. So the idea that if we could target the virus with antiviral, uh, that would be a smarter and possibly more effective strategy. So we are collaborating with clinical group interested in exploring the role of antivirals in MS.
0: Do you think that there's any connection between the viral load or the response to the virus that would perhaps influence the outcomes in MS? Yeah, I
4: think that the leading hypothesis is that cross-reactivity between the new response against EBV and myelin antigens or that an alternative hypothesis or complementary hypothesis that ebv infected B cells uh, can have an abnormal behavior, be more likely to to invade the CNS, or that the immune response against EBV causes collateral damage to myelin. So under any of these uh, possibilities, so there is obviously the interplay between the virus and the immune system is what is really driving the, the disease process.
0: Now that your team has proven that EBV infection is necessary, but perhaps not sufficient for MS development, have you had a lot of worried responses from people with
4: mononucleosis? I want to reassure everyone who had mononucleosis or uh, infected with EBV that the risk of MS remains very small, less than one in a hundred lifetime risk, even in people with mononucleosis. I don't want to alarm anyone uh, of the listener about the actual risk of MS, given that they had EBV or mononucleosis.
0: Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy.
1: If you would like to suggest a topic for discussion or contribute to Physicians Weekly, please email pwpodcast at physiciansweekly.com.